You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in today. And it's time now for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, before we get to uh, Phil, we're going to do our moment of silent prayer for all of our men and women that are have given their ultimate and also uh, for those that are serving today and will serve. And we'll be back right after this, uh, just a moment of silence. And that's, uh, if you go to our website, you can go to J. Roy Ritchie Prayer Line, and that's Veterans Praying for Veterans. And if you've got someone that needs a prayer, just send us their name, and uh, we'll see that it goes on the air. So we'll be back right after this. Okay, let's uh, get on with what we're doing, and uh, uh, let's do a little cadence call for the fun of it today, and uh, we do this on David's pick as well, but uh, Phil has been gracious enough to say we could play a, a Jody on his show, so we'll play a little bit of it anyway. Okay, well, that's probably enough of that. And, um, Phil, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm well, David. Good. Thanks for asking. And you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. We're going to make it. We're all going to make it. And I want to uh, remind everyone, Phil was a OV-1D Mohawk pilot and uh, served in uh, Desert Shield and then Desert Storm. And uh, if you wonder what a Mohawk does, that's it's a very scary position because it's an Intel helicopter. And uh, you know, you'd uh, would you would you give us a normal day, Phil? Well, <clears throat> I uh, just have to stop you there. That the Mohawk was <clears throat> not a helicopter. No, uh, fixed fixed wing airplane. Um. It was a, it was an Intel though. Did I say helicopter? Yes. yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I, I know it's a fixed wing, and uh, it was an Intel helicopter. Or helicopter. God, I said it again. Intel piece Airport. of equipment. Fixed wing, single engine. Two engines. Two engines. Okay. Um, two Lycoming two T fifty three engines. <clears throat> um, and uh, was a 
<clears throat> was kind of a unique airplane in the Army. Um, but uh, so our typical day, uh, I couldn't really say day because uh, a lot, most of my missions were actually at night. Um, we did uh, uh, a mission called Side Looking Airborne Radar where we uh, we cast a, a radar uh, signal to the left or right of the airplane where the enemy was, and it would look deep into their territory and it would find <clears throat> moving targets on the ground, sort of like an AWACS, uh, but for finding uh, ground targets instead of aerial targets. And, um, and then we would... Uh, we also had a version of the uh, Mohawk. It was called the Quick Look Aircraft that uh, was nothing but a giant uh, radar receiver. Hmm. And we would fly back and forth on a track and uh, get painted with uh, radars that were doing all sorts of various jobs on the battlefield. And this uh, aircraft would catalog the, the radar signals and... Uh, based on where they were coming from, it would calculate their location and put it all in a database, would uh, either downlink it to a station or it will, uh, could be downloaded at, uh, after the mission. So we knew where uh, all the enemy radar transmitters were and what they were. Uh, so it gave a big part of the intel picture. The uh, So uh, Typical uh, side-looking airborne radar or SLAR mission uh, would go to a briefing tent, <clears throat> get about an hour's worth of uh, briefing on the mission we were supposed to fly, uh, which would include the altitude and the uh, the exact uh, location or track that we would fly, and uh, then uh, we would go down pre-flight the aircraft and. Uh, We'd have two aircraft. One would be our primary, and the other would be a backup in case the uh, the first one were to fail the pre-flight inspection. Uh, then uh, we would have to run them up and align the uh, gyros. We didn't. We weren't using uh, GPS at the time, so we had these uh, inertial navigation systems. These uh, basically three-axis gyros that uh, were accelerometers that would uh, have the exact location of the aircraft. And, of course, the location of the aircraft is very important because it also <clears throat> gave the location of the targets you were finding on the ground. And then uh, we would uh, take off. Now, uh, once, once we started flying over the enemy territory, uh, we, we started these missions well in advance, probably October of uh, 1990. But uh, the air war started on the, uh, well, on about the 17th of January in 1991. And uh, <clears throat> we moved our uh, our tracks up into the, uh, the enemy area and uh, would fly. Uh, so we could fly... Well, our, our base was located kind of far to the south. We had tried to get some real estate up uh, more toward the mission area, but uh, there were a lot of competing priorities for available ramp space. 
so we had to start in our um, well from way back about 400 uh, kilometers to the rear <clears throat> so we would uh, take off and we'd fly up to an airfield that was uh, close by to the mission area and refuel and with a full bag of gas as we say we would fly up into the mission area uh, we would relieve the uh, the aircraft that was uh, on station and uh, would sort of do a handoff and we'd, we'd begin our tracks and we'd fly six hours in the mission area and then uh, from there we would fly to the uh, core uh, operations center 18th Airborne Corps we supported and so they had a, a tactical operations center up in a town called Rafa along the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. We would uh, go and land at Rafa. We would drop off our imagery, uh, which was uh, physical imagery on a uh, roll of acetate. And then uh, while we were dropping that off, we would get uh, hot refuel. In other words, we'd have one engine running while we were getting refueled and then uh, we take off from uh, Rafa and fly back to uh, our base. So six hours in the mission area and then transit time up, refueled. Uh, the total was about nine hours of uh, actual flight time uh, for a single mission. And, uh, and what kind of altitude were you running? We would typically fly. Uh, they told us the best altitude uh, above the ground for our imagery was around 8,000 feet, so uh, allowing for height above sea level. We, we typically would fly about 10,000 feet uh, in a nice, slow, and steady, gyro-stabilized track. If anybody wanted to shoot us down, we were probably the easiest target they could ever think of. <laughs> well, you were running without lights, I would assume, right? No, we didn't go blackout because uh, one of the first things we did uh, on, in the air war is uh, we took that database of all the radar transmitters and uh, the Air Force, Navy, and Marines went out and uh, dropped a radar seeking missile on every single one of their radars. Hmm. So uh, they couldn't see us, really, and uh, you know they couldn't acquire us. Uh, I guess they could have shot at us with... Uh, you know, small arms from the ground or maybe anti-aircraft cannons if they had it, but they wouldn't have any radar guidance. They could shoot at us with heat-seeking missiles if they had them, but <clears throat> the, uh, the, uh, we, we carried an onboard, uh, uh, infrared jammer, so, uh, would kind of make a heat-seeking missiles ineffective. So, uh, close as I came to getting, uh, shot down by air defense was uh, when I had the wrong code in my uh, transmitter for uh, identification friend or foe and uh, the Syrians were lighting me up and uh, <laughs> with a acquisition radar and so I quickly switched to the, the correct code and, and they ceased their uh, but the Syrians were actually on our side at that time and so uh you know, that would have been friendly fire. And your airspeed was about, about what? Well, <clears throat> they wanted a, 
they wanted a uh, ground speed for for the best imagery of somewhere around 180 nautical miles per hour, 180 knots. And uh, when you're flying at 10,000 feet, um, 180 knots uh, is an indicated airspeed of somewhere around 135 to 140. And if you had a little bit of a tailwind, why uh, that would pick up your ground speed a bit. And so uh, we were sort of really uh, kind of on the ragged edge of a stall. <laughs> And you, you were, uh, I guess at that point, uh, if you were going up around 10, then you were requiring oxygen too, right? Um, we had oxygen on board. We typically um, didn't use it. We would have the oxygen mask kind of sitting in our lap. And uh, whenever we would feel a need for a little bit of oxygen, we'd pick up the mask and take a few sips, put it back down. Hmm. Well, we're going to take our first break, Phil, and uh, we'll be back with Phil Forsberg right after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do thank you for listening, and uh, you're listening to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and we've got Phil Forsberg on, who was a pilot, a fixed-wing pilot, I might add, um, the Mohawk. Uh, Phil, when I was in at Fort Ord, and this was uh, uh, right in the middle of, of Vietnam, they had come out, and, I, and I'm... Only it was a fixed wing, but it was so quiet. It was like, at best, a car passing on the road. How how loud was the Mohawk? Well, uh, it was the loudest aircraft in the Army inventory at the time. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was it wasn't it certainly wasn't a stealth aircraft to sneak up on people. Um, I had an air traffic controller in Oklahoma one time when he looked down at his strip and he saw that I was a Army OV-1. He said to me, uh, is, that, is that a Mohawk, sir? I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, you know what we called that in Vietnam? I said, nope. He said, uh, we called it whistling death. I guess it would only hear him after they passed over. Well, this plane was uh, incredible. When we were out uh, doing a survival, escape, and evasion, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm, I don't know what it turned out to be. It, it could have wound up being a Mohawk because they were uh, flying over us, trying to spot us, and uh, 
So it may have been either a Mohawk or something similar to it for a first generation or something. Who knows? I think uh, <clears throat> I think what you're talking about is a, a Schweitzer. Uh, it was sort of like a powered glider. I had an engine, but it, uh, it didn't need a lot of thrust to stay aloft. It hmm. had a very uh, high aspect uh, ratio wing. And um, it it would glide. it was uh, basically built off the airframe of a glider, but it had its own power. Uh, but it didn't mean much. Hmm. Just think what they'd do with it today. They'd put a battery in it and do a do a motor instead of an engine to Take turn the, the pilot out. Yeah. But anyway, so okay, so you'd go on these missions and. Uh, You'd you'd replace whoever was there, and uh, would you have? We'd stay until we got replaced. And uh, you'd have radio contact with them, I assume. Yep. Yeah, we had uh, you know standard uh, signals operating instructions. Would assign us our frequencies for the day, and that'd all be covered in our briefing. And. Did you did the Air Force have your back when you would go in if if uh, if it did wind up to get hot? We had um, <clears throat> you know we're flying these aircraft and everybody's out trying to uh, hurt people with their uh, various aircraft and uh, one thing we didn't want to do was hurt each other uh, so we weren't really flying on uh, you know, like an instrument. Uh, route structure like they have here in the states. So the uh, the Air Force flew uh, uh, their 707, the AWACS aircraft, and uh, they were supposed to. They, you know, we we checked in with them, and they were supposed to provide us radar separations from uh, other aircraft at the time. Uh, and they did a pretty good job of it. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so we. Uh, you know, it was, it was sort of like a tactical air traffic control system. You know, Did I answer your question. Yeah, I, I just keep coming back to, and we've talked about this before: the overwhelming power, and both manpower and equipment power <clears throat> that we had going into the Iraqi conflict, and um, I just. I, I don't see how anybody could say I want this brought down upon me, and uh, you know it's just <laughs> sort of irony that uh, Hussein would be that stupid that uh, he w- he would bring down the force. And you know the the good thing, and I guess back me up on this, but when. You and and the rest were ordered to go in. Would you say we went in with a full complement? We didn't cut back on anything, did we? Whether it was a the most advanced peace shooter or the most advanced weapon, uh, we went in to win. Yeah, we definitely uh, showed up with all our toys, if you will, uh, and we had a lot of really pretty good ones actually at the time 
um, you know, as I've said before, we were uh, getting ready, you know, most of my early years in the Army to uh, go toe-to-toe with the Ruskies in nuclear combat, as Slim Pickens would say. <laughs> uh, but uh, instead, you know, we got, uh, I don't know, third string. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> I mean, Saddam Hussein stayed in power by bullying his own people and his neighbors and such, but uh, he wasn't really prepared to deal with the likes of us, and you know, I think he he probably never thought he would have to, but um, he crossed the line there somewhere. Do you think uh, the way we went in, do you think this taught any of our other enemies at the time or potential enemies even today what the U.S. can do? Well, I'll say if you uh, if you try to beat all your uh, swords into plowshares eventually you'll find yourself plowing for the people who kept their swords. Um, but <clears throat> every time we do something and especially Desert Storm was a, was a great example there's a lot of interest from, uh, I won't say our enemies, but I'll say our potential adversaries, um, Iran, um, uh, North Korea, uh, Chinese, Russians, um, you know, those, those are a big, uh, uh, in my opinion, adversaries, um, or at least potential adversaries. Uh, you know, so they, they watch very carefully what goes on, and you'll notice that uh, within a, a year of us uh, cleaning up in Iraq, the, uh, the Russians decided that the Soviet Union was not going to be able to sustain. So they just called for the check. So you you feel like well obviously mission accomplished. Uh, as as far as like I I get a kick out of and they had some footage on it. You know the the uh, Iraqis surrendering to a plane or surrendering to the sky really and uh, just surrendering and that had to have a tremendous effect on the morale at that point. And uh, you got a, you got a military with a morale problem, and then you don't have a military. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I don't think any of them really... I mean, there. I guess there are a few real believers uh, in their cause going into that, but um, it's... Uh, uh, you know, we, we quickly disabuse them of, of those notions. Um, I don't know what do they say. They were reading their own press reports, yeah. uh, reading their own propaganda, <laughs> and believing it. So, as we know what happened as the conflict was wearing down and um, Saddam decided to light all the wells in Kuwait... What effect did that have on what you were doing? 
Well, it turned the skies kind of a dark brown. Um, you know, ordinarily there's a haze layer, uh, like here around Atlanta. Uh, sky is really clear, and then you get down about 8,000 feet, and the humidity makes the skies kind of hazy. Over there, there was more of a dust layer because the humidity had, uh, you know, this fine uh, desert dust particles in the air. So it was a little bit uh, kind of a mud-colored from the uh, from 8,000 feet down, and then once the uh, once the oil smoke got in there, it was kind of a black brown from uh, from 8,000 feet down. Up above that, it was it was pretty nice flying, but um, and <clears throat> so you know there there's questions about the uh, the impact of, of the oil smoke uh, on the folks that were exposed to it. I can't imagine it. It had a beneficial effect. <laughs> or they haven't come up with one yet, or China hadn't come up with one yet. No. But I would suggest to uh, any veterans that may have been there and exposed to that to uh, register on the VA website, va.gov. Uh, just do a little search for uh, Gulf War Registry and register for that. And then anybody who was in Desert Storm or deployed to the, to either uh, Iraq, Kuwait, um, uh, Afghanistan, any of that area, uh, they have a what they call a burn pit registry. And they put the, uh, the basically they're collecting data on uh, folks that served in those areas and what they're looking for is somehow uh, correlate uh, what's common among them and uh, you know see if, if any of that stuff uh, had caused uh, some health problems and you know that's how they uh, they wound up uh, covering a lot of illnesses under the presumption of Agent Orange in Vietnam because they, they collected data for uh, quite a time right. unfortunately a lot of the guys that were affected by it uh, passed away before they were signing benefit. Phil, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be back right after this. All right. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And want to remind everybody, too, that if uh, you're a graduating senior in high school or college or have had some college and still haven't made up your mind what you want to do, we certainly suggest that you look at the military. Any of the branches will have 
your interest and whatever you're interested in, you can find it in the military, and we highly recommend that you do that. The other thing is, if you live in Atlanta or you're traveling to Atlanta, uh, don't forget to put on your list of things you want to see is the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Uh, Rick White does a wonderful job. Rick White, Colonel Rick White, I should say, retired, and he does a fantastic job at the Hall of Fame. And, uh, in fact, he has done such a good job. There are other areas, other states that are doing, looking to uh, Rick to possibly uh, give them instructions on how to do their own state. Uh, I think one of them happens to be North Carolina at the moment, and uh, Texas, I believe, is going that route as well. But it is worth a day, two days, to go down and tour the Hall of Fame. So let's get back to Phil and remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And, you know, Phil, one of the main reasons and I've gone over this before, that we do this show is people have to remember our veterans and the folks like yourself that have raised their hand to go into harm's way and keep us safe and sound. And we just can't, I don't care whether it was a fight between a, a seaman and an and a Army E-5, but if it was a war, then we'd need to remember them, and we need to remember what they have sacrificed, and we also always salute the families of our veterans. Oh, by the way, I've, I've got a quick announcement to make there. We're going to be uh, covering something that veterans, believe it or not, have not had in the past, and that's the ability to see a dental doctor, a uh, dentist uh, under the VA. Well, we've got a new charity that has started up, and we'll be introducing it on the station where veterans, it will be slow to move across the country, but it will come to a school near you, a dental school, and uh, it's already in North Carolina, and they're going to be expanding, and we're going to try to help them expand. So this will be coming up. Uh, we're going to do an interview with a West Point graduate that started this, and uh, uh, that will be this Thursday at 10 a.m. So keep that in mind that uh, veterans in the near future are going to be able to get dental care, which I know that you all haven't had. and uh, <clears throat> That's true. Uh, well, for most veterans, the... Uh, <clears throat> unless you're 100% disabled, I believe. If you're 100% disabled, there are certain other uh, uh, classifications uh, of veterans that, that can get uh, dental care. I had my very first uh, appointment with the VA uh, dental clinic tomorrow morning at uh, 7.30, and uh, I made that appointment, uh, what would I say, probably a month ago. Wow. Uh, they asked me, they said, well, we're only doing <clears throat> urgent care because of the, the uh, virus situation. I said, well, I you know, have a broken tooth. And they said, okay, we'll take you. Uh, and they gave me this. 
23rd of February. <laughs> See. Uh, you know, I said, well, I thought you said urgent here. Well, whatever. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Hurry up and so, wait. Yeah. Hurry up and wait, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, you know, in, in, uh, there are a lot of veterans that I run into that just don't know the, uh, the level of, uh, benefits that they've earned and that are, uh, theirs according to public law. It's not, uh, any kind of charity or welfare or anything. Um, it's, uh, it's a benefit that they've earned through their service. They don't have to be combat veterans. Uh, they don't have to have ever deployed. Um, you know, the, the <clears throat> there's be- there's benefits for veterans that uh, they've all earned, and and uh, really, uh, if you are in need of, of benefits or just want to explore what benefits might you might be entitled to, uh, I would highly encourage anybody to uh, contact a service officer from one of your veteran service organizations. That, I happen to work with the Disabled American Veterans. You can contact any chapter of them, but uh, also uh, the VFW, the American Legion, all uh, do a similar function and uh, fantastic organization. So if uh, if there are veterans out there that uh, that are in need of uh, of benefits or services. Uh, they really should contact uh, a service officer and, and find out what's available to them. And if if you know a veteran or you have a friend that's a veteran or family member or whatever, you can do the same or at least take them to one of the organizations. Uh, you know, it, it breaks my heart to know that one-fourth of the homeless are veterans, and uh, one out of four are veterans, and uh, that it's just killing. And there are people uh, that are willing to help a veteran under any circumstance. And uh, we always like to remind folks too, if if they're traveling somewhere and they see a, a veteran with a cap on that says "I served on the USS whatever." Buy them a drink or buying them a meal or it'll make you feel better than it makes the veteran. And uh, it'll make your day. In the same way, if you see someone in uniform, do the same or do it with a first responder. Uh, everybody appreciates being thanked. And uh, that's your responsibility, your part of it to do. And that's to thank our veterans. And uh, it'll make you feel a whole lot better, guaranteed. So, Phil, <clears throat> sir, what what was what would you say the average uh, the 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 average officer or NCO or whatever uh, that knew you all flew your missions but didn't know exactly what you did? What was their what was their respect or their concern about you as you would go out on your missions and or return from a mission? Well, <clears throat> our mechanics, 
they all their big concern was what was I going to write up as being uh, broken on the airplane. Uh, they were they were all very very good guys. Uh, I do remember I uh, I did come back from a mission that uh, I barely made it in uh, with the gas I had and uh, I had uh, one engine shut down when I taxied in and uh, the, the next day when I went to go <clears throat> down to the flight line the mechanics were all giving me a hard time saying you know they didn't didn't know I had gone out and defueled one of the airplanes. Uh, it was so low on gas when I brought it back. Um, they were good guys. Uh, I remember, <clears throat> you know, the in the right seat of our uh, aircraft was not another pilot. It was a single pilot uh, aircraft. The uh, right seaters were, uh, well, <clears throat> the Army's designation for them was aerial sensor specialist. Hmm. Uh, but for some reason, these guys didn't really appreciate uh, the acronym uh, that <laughs> came out of aerial sensor specialists. So they uh, they refer to themselves as TOs or technical observers. They're all good guys, and and uh, they uh, the the organization that uh, I led was uh, what well, we called it the service or the surveillance platoon. It included all the uh, all the right seaters and uh, all the imagery analysts. Okay, did, uh, did the Mohawk have uh, dual uh, gauges and instrumentation? No, the instrumentation was really just for the pilot side. Uh, over on the the observer side, we had. Um, Do you have a yoke? No, we had a stick, but the. Uh, over on, on the observer side, when, when the mission equipment was installed, there was no room for any kind of controls over there. Uh, what they could do uh, for training, uh, they could take and uh, put the, uh, uh, remove the, uh, the, the mission equipment, and uh, then they put a, an extra uh, stick in the uh, um, right seat. So you could have uh, an instructor over there, you know, giving instruction, um, and then we would <clears throat> fly it like that. We would call that the dual stick configuration. Um, but no, we uh, we normally flew this single pilot. Uh, you know, the, the fellows in the in the right seat, they could read a checklist for us or uh, other things to that nature but um, we were kind of on our own so so if the pilot is wounded you're sort of SOL right yeah we had uh, Martin Baker ejection seats in the Mohawk and uh, we were you know they taught us uh, we were supposed to uh, give a briefing to our uh, our right seaters uh, what they call the ejection briefing in in the event that uh, the aircraft was supposed to, you know, if we wanted them to eject, we had to have a, a way to let them know. Hmm. Um, some guys would say, you know, well, if, I'll, if I say eject, I want you to go and I'll say it three times. And, uh, and then I'm going to reach over and, you know, with my right hand, I'd, you know, smack you in the chest 
and that's your command to go. And if you, uh, anyway, my ejection briefing <clears throat> was, uh, something like this. If you, uh, if I, if I need you to eject, I will say the word eject. I will not say the word eject once we're off the ground, uh, unless that's what I want you to do. Um, but I would say, uh, so <clears throat> some folks will tell you that their nonverbal command to eject is, uh, when they, uh, hit you in the chest like that. But, uh, for me, your nonverbal command to eject is any time that we're off the ground and you're in the airplane and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that would get their words, attention, yeah. If I've, if I've left, then don't wait around. <laughs> you don't have any controls. Uh, but <clears throat> I said, I will not reach over and hit you in the chest because if you heard me say eject and you're in the process of ejecting while I reach over to hit you in the chest, then I'm just going to draw back a bloody stump. So uh, <laughs> I'm not putting my hand over your chair. Uh, <laughs> so did, and any time while you were, were doing this, did... Uh, Without radar and without really the equipment, did anything ever come up to try to shoot you down? There was uh, one occasion that, you know, when, when we started the air war, uh, if you'll recall, the, the Iraqis all fled, uh, those that could get off the ground. Uh, for some reason, they went, <clears throat> they had some arrangement with uh, Iran, believe it or not. And uh, that was, may not seem unusual today, but uh, back then you have to recall Iran and Iraq had been uh, in a pretty uh, horrible war for about uh, eight years running up to, to Desert Storm. Um, but uh, they, they all took off for uh, Iran when, uh, when we started prosecuting the air war. And... Uh, <clears throat> So, uh, but prior to the the, uh, the air war, the Iraqi Air Force was still flying, and uh, each day they uh, they were kind of moving our our track up close closer and closer to the uh, to the border, and uh, there was one point at which we knew with the the weapon systems that the Iraqis had. If we got within so much distance of the border, they would be uh, able to fire a missile, shoot us down, and still stay within their own airspace. Um, and then one day, sure enough, our track got moved up uh, within that window. I was a little concerned, but I went up there and I flew uh, my mission, and everything seemed to be going fine. And then uh, AWACS. Uh, who was kind of watching our back there? They said, uh, "You've got a, uh, a an Iraqi fighter or you know enemy fighter." At, uh, he gave me a coordinates, and it was and he had him. I get, kept getting updates, and he was moving closer and closer to me, and uh, and uh, so I was ready for our uh, code word. AWACS would give us a code word if they want us to to bug out. And uh, 
if we got the, this code word, we were supposed to just kind of roll it upside down and head for the ground and uh, head south uh, at about 50 feet if we could. Uh, but the, uh, <clears throat> well, just before he made this, his uh, comment that, you know, that would have said he was in range for me, uh, he told me, no, he's, he's turned off and he's, he's headed back north. And so I went back to re sort of relaxing, and I was eating a Slim Jim. <laughs> and then my uh, my radar warning receiver went off, and it told me that I had a friendly fighter at my 7 o'clock position. And um, <clears throat> we, we knew that the Iraqis had some uh, uh, French Mirage jets, and we weren't sure if our software would have said that they were enemy or friendly um, as the French were our ally in, in that coalition. So uh, now I became concerned that this guy might have slipped past uh, AWACS notice and was about to uh, drill me with a missile. And uh, so I was frantically looking over my left shoulder to see what was in my 7 o'clock position. And finally I saw uh, what was a... Um, British uh, Royal Air Force uh, Tornado, yeah. which is one of their fighters, and he kind of pulled up alongside me and took a close look. I gave him a salute, and he peeled off. So I'm pretty sure that that tornado was the reason that my uh, uh, the Iraqi that was showing so much interest in, in me had turned away. Uh in the AWACS, what is the commanding officer, colonel, or what? <laughs> I, I never went on the AWACS, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, I only talked to him on the radio. Okay, I didn't know whether, um, who would give the command from an AWACS. I, I was just curious. I, I, you know, I don't know. but Well, I mean, you have a, a crew that's flying it, and then the whole back of it is full of sort of operators, I think. Um, and they're talking on various radios. Um, now, the the, uh, <clears throat> the the British tornado that was on there, he was part of what they call the combat air patrol. So they'd have fighters just patrolling the border, um, waiting to see if they were needed to uh, rush back uh, or engage anybody that would might want to come up against our folks and uh you know you might think that uh that they didn't really care that much about an airplane like ours but uh after the war we actually got to see some photographs of these uh bunkers uh that the iraqis had occupied and there was a poster on one of the walls i remember seeing of the poster and most of it was in arabic but in big letters, it said, you know, it was basically a warning uh, poster about operation security. In big letters, it said, S-L-A-R, SLAR, side-looking airborne radar. And it, this uh, little poster was telling them that that was one of our capabilities. You know, the, the, the Mohawk was the primary uh, dispenser of side-looking airborne radar, if you will. So, like the tornado, or 
R105 or whatever, what uh, what type of armament would they uh, come up with as far as or ordnance uh, that, that that they would when they were flying on patrol, like you said, uh, air to ground missiles or no? I think those are primarily air to air missiles. Okay, uh, you know specifically uh, to repel any kind of uh, Iraqi fighters that might be coming to you know, take out me or some other folks. A uh, long time ago, the Air Force uh, during Vietnam was very unhappy that the Army had uh, a Mohawk that could drop 500-pound bombs. And, uh, so they, uh, they made us take all that stuff off. So the only thing, the only armament system I had on the Mohawk when I flew was a... Um, 38 caliber pistol, Smith and Wesson Model 10. <laughs> well, if nothing else, you could throw it at them. Yeah, I think the reason we had those was to keep ourselves from telling secrets if we were captured. <laughs> this is this is where you pointed, huh? <laughs> yeah, they, they you know they used to take us out to the pistol range and they'd have us. You know, firing from the standing position, from the kneeling position, and from the prone position. Uh, we used to joke with they. They really should have us, you know, test us firing from the position we're going to be in. When, if we ever use this thing, which would be the running away position, firing <laughs> over our shoulder. <laughs> like 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 the cowboys used to do, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, again. I want to stress the fact that all veterans, please take note that you need to talk to your family, you need to talk to your grandkids, your kids, about what you did, because today, veterans are our history books. And it's so important to get the truth out and let people, let your kids and your family know what you did and your your duty and in wherever you served or whatever you served in. And uh, it's important because our history is not being told completely these days, and it's up to the veterans to keep it alive, and it's up to the veterans, all veterans, to remember their brothers and sisters, no matter which war or what the circumstance was. And we can't let Desert Shield and Desert Storm be forgotten ever. And uh, we'll we'll be seeing the effects of the burn pits and and the smoke from the oil wells, the effects on our men and women that were serving in the Middle East at the time. And uh, did uh, I think we mentioned this one time, and we got just a couple of minutes. But uh, did the what did did the Mohawk play much of a role in? Uh, what was it called? How, uh, the Highway of Death? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, um, that was about 30 years ago on Friday. The uh, Iraqis were trying to bug out <clears throat> from Kuwait City. And uh, we, uh, on that one particular day, that one nine-hour mission that I flew, uh, I, did, I called in 66 targets. Uh, for neutralization. The uh, Airborne Battlefield Control Center, 
was a basically a C-130 flying around like an office building in the sky there where they, they have this staff of folks and they're they're passing uh, targets to the uh, to those you know aircraft like A-10s or whatever ground attack aircraft that could engage um, and so we would pass these targets and I I passed 66 targets on that one mission to uh, to AWACS and I started when I started passing the the targets they were, couldn't believe their their good fortune and that the you know not everybody in their air force knows what the army has so they were a little astounded that the army had this thing could find targets like that for them and, uh, and so I was passing these targets in a you know an encrypted fashion uh, using a cipher table and uh, they were so hungry for those targets they finally just said to me just send them in the clear you know hmm. and before anybody could do anything about this you know we'll have them dead so okay I just started passing them pretty quick in the clear and uh, they were just thirsty for them not, in, uh, not encrypted correct? yeah not encrypted just uh, this is you know, just plain language like I'm talking to you. I'd give them the lat long, and off the, off would go somebody to go knock them dead. And one of the targets that we got was a multiple launch rocket battalion, and uh, it. Uh, well, we got a report from the from the Air Force fellows that engaged it, saying that the secondary explosions were just phenomenal. Wow! Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen these, the Soviet version of. Kind of like what the, uh, the the Nazis used to call Stalin's uh, organ pipes. They, they were just a horrible uh, weapon system. The BM twenty one multiple launch rocket system, and uh, I blew that up. I'll tell you, um, thirty years ago on Wednesday is the anniversary, thirtieth anniversary of uh, when our troops started rolling north in the ground war. And I'll tell you, it was a little bit anxious, but it was a great deal of relief for us because we knew as soon as we got this mission done, we were going home. Wow. 24th of February. Well, we're certainly glad that you made it safely and that that uh, hopefully you won't have any effects and that those that do will be able to uh, be treated and taken care of as the Agent Orange folks are being taken care of. Um, and we, I think Desert Shield, Desert Storm, without a doubt, proved the might of the USA. And, uh, you know, we, we're glad to work with veterans and we're glad to have you on board. And, and it just, it's always amazing, and I always learn something every show that we do here. And uh, from a veteran's viewpoint, and a, uh, we have Pete Mecca that does another show called A Veteran's Story, and his his shows are extremely interesting. And we try to we really try to show all sides of everything as much as we can, and that's. One reason for this show is that we just, you know, people know about Vietnam. They know about, well, they're trying to write off 
World War II and Korean War, and eventually they'll try to do away maybe with Vietnam. But we're as long as we're around, we're going to keep people knowing about our brave men and women that have kept us free. And, uh, you know, it's, like I, like I said earlier, it may not have been directly keeping us free because we were in Iraq and Iran and the Middle East, but indirectly, it certainly was keeping us free and has kept us free. And, uh, Phil, I want to thank you again for today and the past weeks that you've done this. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And hope that you have a, a wonderful rest of the week and a great weekend. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.